began a series a few weeks ago called Tempted, where if you're just joining us, we've been talking about this idea. It sounds strange at first, especially if you're here for the first time, but we live in a world uh, that is at war in spiritual terms and cosmic terms that if we could peel back the curtain, if we could see behind the curtain in terms of God, in terms of a devil, uh, there, is a war, there is a war that's going on, that there is a source to evil, that it, it's not just by happenstance. That in other words, uh, every horrible thing that happens in this world, uh, it comes from a place. This is what the scriptures teach, uh, that, that the world is essentially uh, at war. And if we don't like the warfare metaphor, uh, it's really not a metaphor. It's just the pictures, the portrait the scriptures give us of what is really going on, that all evil can't be reduced uh, just to psychological or sociological factors in this world. In other words, uh, every serial killer, every war, it's not started because somebody's mom didn't hold them long enough or uh, poverty, or it, that, that it actually comes from a place. There is an enemy. There is a devil that is at work in this world. And I, and I certainly understand if you're new with us, if you're just kind of you know, checking church out, this just sounds so bizarre. It sounds like something straight out of Lord of the Rings, you know, and uh, how in the world in an iPhone and Google world can people actually believe this? But as Christians, as the disciples of Jesus, we do, uh, because this is what the Bible teaches is, is the source uh, of, of evil and, and that God's the source of good and, and there's an enemy, there's a devil that is the source of evil. And we believe it, um, not just because the scriptures teach it, but because this is what Jesus believed. And um, if Jesus has the capacity, if he has the ability uh, to walk out of a tomb, if he has the ability to predict his death and then predict his own resurrection and somehow pull it off, I'm going with that guy until somebody else comes along uh, and is capable of doing that. This is what Jesus believed about the world, that this is a world that is essentially at war. Something we cannot see is affecting everything that we can see. And we've just talked the last couple weeks, especially Steve just did an incredible job of walking us through in practical ways how to live in the middle of a world at war. And if you uh, didn't get a chance to hear it a couple weeks ago, Steve talked through the three areas of vulnerability, the three gates where the enemy is going to attack and where you're going to be tempted the most. Uh, The scriptures, when you start to read the scriptures, you realize they have a a, a plan laid out. The, the, The battle plan of the enemy is right there in the scriptures in terms of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life. If you, don't, uh, if you haven't heard that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, he talked last week about how to dress for battle, how to be prepared. The letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in terms of uh, the Roman legionnaire's outfit, uh, to, to be prepared because an attack is coming. An enemy is waging war against you and against me. And it sounds strange, it sounds bizarre, but this is what the scriptures teach. It's really going on in this world, that evil, it has a source. And I wanna talk specifically today about how you begin to rebuild your faith. When your faith, if you're anything like me, you found yourself in moments where your faith has been knocked down, where in this world at war, you've been taken out, where an enemy uh, has, has maybe through guilt, maybe through shame, has, has convinced you to not get back up, to not re-enter into your faith, how do you begin to rebuild a faith that in a world at war has been knocked down or has been injured? Uh, Because faith is not self-healing. And when there's been an injury, it requires an environment, it requires you and I stepping back and creating an environment for our faith to begin to thrive or be rebuilt. 
again. If you have a Bible, let's open it together to Genesis chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, we're gonna put these verses on the screen. Genesis chapter two, it's always important to begin in the beginning. This is the picture the scriptures give us of the world before the world. Uh, this is God's original vision for how this place was supposed to look. Genesis uh, chapter two is where we're gonna begin. One of the central questions that the Old Testament writers ask over and over again is where does God dwell? What is the house of God? What is God's address, essentially? And this is a, a, scripture, a question the scripture writer over and over again uh, are, are concerned with. What, what is God's dwelling place? Where is God living? If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter two, we're gonna start in verse one together. God makes a creation, and then it says this, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, usually the seventh day is, is a throwaway day for most Christians. In the 21st century, uh, the seventh day, it's not really where the action is. The real action is the first six days where God makes the sun, the moon, energy, stars, people, sets up his world. Uh, that's the real action. The seventh day, it's sort of a, uh, well, I bet God was tired from making that moon. Uh, I'm glad he got a nap in there. Uh, he deserved one after uh, making everything. I bet that was very tiring and an exhausting process. But for the, for the audience that would have originally uh, received this or read this, uh, they would have seen the seventh day as the most important day. Because the seventh day was the day that God was going to take up residence in the creation that he had built. The seventh day, it wasn't a throwaway day, it was the linchpin day where God was going to, to essentially take up residence in the world that he designed and created. They would have essentially read this as the first six days, God was creating and building a temple for himself. And he appoints Adam and Eve to be the priests that sort of rule and govern the temple. But God has built a temple for himself and on the seventh day, he's going to take up residence in this house. This is where he is going to dwell. This is where heaven is going to meet earth. The picture here is of the White House, that the President of the United States governs all of America, all the land from Montana, from sea to shining sea. He governs all of America, but he has a central location. He has a White House from which he takes up residence, from which he dwells. The same is true for God. All the solar systems, all the galaxies, what the Hubble telescope can only begin to see the edges of is all under the authority and the domain of God. But the creation, the world is going to be his white house. This is going to be his dwelling place and his central command. As we looked at the first week, this creation gets compromised. An enemy comes and sets up a, a, a counter kingdom to the kingdom of God. He essentially, uh, a couple pages into the story, invites Adam and Eve into a game of musical chairs with God where, the, where he tells them, God's sitting in your seat. You deserve to be God. And we could be down on Adam and Eve, but had the story been us, it would have gone the exact same way because every day I vote not to follow God, but to be God myself. And the creation becomes a hostile place. An enemy begins to enter in. And it's not that God vacates the earth, but his relationship with the world changes. 
that his relationship with planet Earth, he's still here, he's still in control, he still holds the whole world in his hands, but this world, uh, it becomes a dangerous and hostile place, and God's relationship with it begins to change. A couple pages into the scriptures, God decides he wants to take up residence with a people, and he comes to this guy named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to be raising up a nation through you, Abraham, and you're gonna be my people, and I am going to be your God. A few pages later, these people find themselves in captivity in Egypt, and this guy named Moses comes, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, uh, talking about them wandering in the desert. I'm not gonna bring the cones back out. I'm not gonna do that to you again, but they, they why are you laughing? Uh, they, uh, they wander in the desert. Moses, you probably saw the cartoon. Uh, Moses says, let my people go to the Pharaoh. They begin for 40 years this process of wandering in the desert in search of Jerusalem. God is leading them to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. But while they're in the wilderness and while they're in the desert, God comes to Moses pretty early on in the journey in Exodus chapter 25 and says, I want to dwell with my people. I want to take up residence in your presence. And it says this in Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse number eight. They, or excuse me, then, they then, then have them make a sanctuary. This is God talking to Moses. Yahweh says to Moshe, then have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them a hundred times in the Old Testament. Uh, this idea of God taking up residence with the Jewish people in the wilderness occurs. He dwells among them. Make this tabernacle. He tells them, I want a house. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so in the desert, what the, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people do is they construct a dwelling place. It's essentially a tent that, that God is going to live in. And for the next 15 chapters or so of Exodus, God gives very specific instructions on how he wants his house, his tabernacle, to be furnished. It reads uh, almost like a Pinterest board for the next 15 chapters. Uh, it's like Bass Pro Shop meets Martha Stewart. There's uh, elaborate instructions on how to make uh, curtains out of goat hair. Uh, in case you're in the market for that, uh, for a man cave, that is in there. Uh, he just gives these instructions, and, and, and he has a house. He has a dwelling. This is the place in the wilderness where heaven is going to meet earth. This is the place where sins are going to be forgiven. God dwells. And it's not as if uh, the Israelites are just dragging God around the wilderness. It's actually vice versa. Through a cloud, God will begin to move, and the Israelites will take up the residence of God, and when they move, they set up a house for God in the wilderness and God dwells in their very midst. As the story goes on, they eventually reach their promised land. They reach Israel where they are to this very day. And in this promised land, a few hundred years after being there, through a king named Solomon, one of the great kings of the history of Israel, Solomon says, our God doesn't need a tent. Our God doesn't deserve to dwell in a tabernacle. Our God needs a house. Our God needs a temple. And so on the side of a mountain, Solomon constructs with the greatest building materials that existed in the world through silver, gold. He builds from rock and stone, exotic rock and stone, a temple. This is going to be the house of God. And this is now the place where God is going to dwell, right there in the center of Jerusalem in the people of God. This is going to be the thriving epicenter. It's not just like a church building. 
It's the very house of God. It's where sins are forgiven. It's where heaven is going to meet earth. Two things were of ultimate importance for the people in Jerusalem. The wall around the city and the temple. The wall around the city was for safety. The temple was for worship. The wall was for safety and the temple was for worship. And this was the signifier that God was with them. This reminded the people, God is in our very midst. Well, in the same way you turn on the news today and you see Israel is always in conflict, the same thing was true 2,700 years ago. And 2,700 years ago, if you turned on the news, you would have seen Babylon around the year 600 decided they wanted to enter into Jerusalem. They wanted the Hebrew people. And over about a 20-year process, their king Nebuchadnezzar directs that the Babylonians would knock down the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. And so the people are no longer safe. Their city has been compromised. And it takes about 20 years. They drag the king off, the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, or the king of Judah. They drag him off. And over time, over about a 20-year process, they knock the temple, this very signifier that had stood for over 400 years, It got knocked down by the Babylonians. And as the temple went, so the faith of the people went. They get captured by the Babylonians. They get dragged off to Babylon for 70 years where they are slaves. And after a period of time, after 70 years, Babylon is no longer the world's superpower. Now Persia is in charge. And Persia has this king, his name's Cyrus. And Cyrus essentially says, I have no need for all these Hebrew people. You can return to Jerusalem. And so the people start trickling back into Jerusalem. And what they find after 70 years is that their wall is in ruin, their houses are in ruin, the whole land is cobwebs and chaos, and their temple is still in ruin. Everything is in ruin after 70 years. And the people start trickling back in. Well, they start doing, when they return to their homeland, they start doing exactly what you would start doing and exactly what I would start doing. They start building the wall. They start building their houses. Let's get the economy going. We have very visible problems. We do not have time to think about an invisible God. And so they begin doing everything. And for 20 years, the temple sits as a pile of stones. And they walk past it. They walk around it. But they never begin to rebuild it. And an ignored temple for Israel, is a sign of an ignored faith. Well, after 20 years or so of this, finally God sends this prophet named Haggai. And Haggai comes to the people, and the story is is so incredible because it has so much application for you and for me today. Because Haggai comes to the people and he basically asks this, is it ever a good idea to suspend your faith in God? Is it ever a good idea for us to just let our faith sit like a pile of stones? Is it ever a good idea for us just to treat our faith in God as a secondary issue while we build houses and focus on very visible problems? And God comes through this prophet Haggai, and here's the story. Haggai chapter one is where the story is told. Haggai chapter one, starting in verse one. And this, Haggai gives four prophecies occur over about a 15-week period to the people, and he's a brilliant historian and records exactly when this all occurs. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, 
son of uh, Kardashian, governor of Judah. <laughs> and to, <laughs> he was a very stylish man. And to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The time has not yet come. And Haggai's going, wait a minute. What about the temple? An ignored temple is a sign that we've ignored our God, the thing that used to be the thriving epicenter of everything. Are we just gonna be content to stare at stones? And the people are just like you and they're just like me. When their faith has taken a hit, when their faith has been knocked down, they've moved on. They are content, just like we get content, to treat our faith in God as a secondary issue. And Haggai comes and goes, are we really gonna leave our faith as a pile of stones? Are we gonna begin the rebuilding process? And then Haggai comes to the people and he says this and he asks a question. It's so powerful, even 2,700 years or so later. He says this in verse three. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. And he says, verse four, is it a time for you yourselves, saying this to Israel, for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? In other words, the economy's picked up. We're not in slavery anymore. Things have gotten better in our nation. And we're back in paneled houses. We're getting everything back, back into order. Is it really okay that we're living in our paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? In other words, are we really content to ignore our God? And then he says this, give careful thought. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. At one time, this was the dwelling place of God. This was the thriving epicenter. This is what gave everything else in their life meaning. But now they are content just to stare at stones and just to walk around it and walk by it and to treat it as a secondary issue. I have met many Christians, and I would imagine you have too. I have been the type of Christian who at one point in my life, and I would imagine for many of us, at one point in your life, your faith was the thriving epicenter of your life. It is what gave everything else in your life meaning. From marriage to money to finances to raising kids, it's what gave everything meaning. It was at one time the thriving epicenter of your life. But an enemy came, something happened, and your faith took a hit, your faith got knocked down. And you've become content just to stare at stones and treat it as a secondary issue. Although at one time, it gave everything else in your life meaning. It might have been a college professor who 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was a lot smarter than your parents or a lot smarter than your pastor. And he or she drove a wedge in your faith between you and God and you never rebuilt it and you weren't sure how to re-enter. Now that you had all this new, new thoughts and philosophy, you were never sure how to rebuild and you became content just to stare at stones. It could have been a group of judgmental Christians and you decided a long time ago, I don't wanna be a Christian. If that's how Christians talk, if that's how Christians act, if that's what Christians do, I don't want anything to do with Christians. And you are content to abandon your faith because it took a hit. And you have become content just to leave it as a pile of stones. It could have been a self-inflicted wound, a moral failure, 
an affair. Something happened. And you weren't sure how to rebuild. You weren't sure how to pick up this. You weren't sure how to begin to put your faith back together after the thing happened. And the greatest defeat the enemies had is not in knocking your faith down. It's through convincing you through shame and through guilt to not pick up the stones and begin to rebuild. And Haggai comes to the people and I'd imagine he'd say the same thing to you and to me when we want to abandon our faith or we want to treat it as a secondary issue. Do not put your faith on hold. At one time, it was the thriving epicenter, and we need to return to what gives everything else in our life meaning. And Haggai comes to the people. He gives another prophecy, and he says this in the next part of the book. It says, then the word of the Lord came through Haggai, or excuse me, verse 6 of Haggai chapter 1, or verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1. Excuse me, never mind. Verse (laughs) 6. Keeping you on your toes. Verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He's just saying, Israel, yeah, we got jobs. We have some money. You know, things are getting back to order. But something Israel is missing We have abandoned the God who gave us this territory and this land to begin with. We have moved on. We have not kept God primary, the God who demands our worship. We have moved on from God and something is missing. The blessing and the favor of God that used to be with us in ignoring our faith, we have have stopped receiving the blessings of God. And, and the Israelites are just like you and me. They're going, well, we got a wall to build. We got houses. We have very visible problems, Haggai. There's other things that we need to be concerned with. And Haggai's, yes, without a wall, we could die. But without a temple, we have no reason to live. Yes, without safety, we could lose our life. But without a worship in our lives, we are going to shrink as a people. Because we have been made for God. And the same thing is true for you. And the same thing is true for me. This is what gives everything in our life meaning. And we can't ignore it. We have to return to rebuild it when it's been knocked down by an enemy. And Haggai understands that the greatest defeat the enemy has is not just in knocking your faith down. It's in convincing you to never pick up the pieces and begin to rebuild. And he's pleading with the people, do not ignore your faith. Don't ever treat your faith as a secondary issue. This is what gives everything meaning. And he continues on and he gives a prophecy that's so powerful that when you want to walk away from your faith, when you want to treat your faith as a secondary issue, when you find yourself like many of us that it's been years since you prayed or you find yourself in this moment where faith used to be the thing that you talked about or cared about, but you've moved on. Just to remember the words of Haggai 2,700 years ago are so powerful. If you have a Bible, Haggai chapter two, verse six. This is the second prophecy. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. This is a prophecy that Jesus is going to come, although they don't understand this at the time. Verse seven, I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine 
and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory, and here's the incredible truth. And if you have a Bible, just highlight it, mark it, remember it. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. He says, guys, if we begin to rebuild, God's going to do something so incredible. If we'll just begin to stop, just stop staring at stones and begin to pick up the pieces of our faith, our broken and abandoned faith. And they're looking, they're looking at their faith just like you and I do. They're going, we could never rebuild it and make it the same way it was. We could never rebuild the temple the way that Solomon had built it. We do not contain the materials that Solomon possessed. We could never build it. That Why even bother? Because it's not going to look the same. And, and Haggai comes to him and says, you're right. Your faith, when you begin the process of rebuilding it, it will be stronger. It will be more glorious than it was before. Because in the same way when an earthquake is knocked down a building, it doesn't get rebuilt the same, does it? It's not vulnerable in the same ways. And the same is true for your faith and mine. When we begin to rebuild it, it's stronger than it was before. And if we just begin the process, even if we're not sure where to begin, of putting the pieces back in place and saying, I'm not gonna treat my faith in God as a secondary issue any longer. It can be rebuilt stronger. The glory of the future house can be stronger than the former and one of the things that, and this has been true for me, because there were several years in my life, high school, college, where I walked away from faith and just was content to stare at stones. And when I came back to faith, and this is true for many Christians that I talk to, when you come back to faith in God, one of the things that you experience is that faith is no longer just uh, built on information. Grace is no longer just a concept that you've heard about. It's now an experience that you've had. And the church of Jesus Christ needs more Christians who don't just understand grace as a concept or an idea, but understand grace as, as a feeling, an emotion, as something that you've experienced in your life. And it becomes the foundation of which you begin to rebuild your faith. Haggai says, come on, let's not leave our faith as a pile of stones. And here's the reason I show you this and show you this and show you this. Because yes, these were the dwelling places of God all throughout the Old Testament. But what we're gonna celebrate next week at Easter is so incredible. Because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what the scriptures teach is that the dwelling place of God is now people. It's you, it's me. Through the blood of Jesus, you have become the temple of God. You have become the dwelling place. You have become the divine real estate where heaven meets earth. You have become the place where God has chosen to take up residence. And you become the place where God says, you are my temple. This is what Paul talks about over, over and over again. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, this is the mystery. This is the hope of glory that Christ is in you. God's not just with us. He's in us. The Holy Spirit of God resides in you and in me. This is the promise. You've become the divine real estate. You've become the holy place where God has chosen to dwell. And if God cares this much about rebuilding brick and mortar, how much more do you think he cares about you and I, flesh and blood, rebuilding our faith when it's been broken and knocked down by an enemy? 
He says, come on, don't treat your faith as a secondary issue. You are the dwelling places of God. You are the house of God where God is taking up residence. And if you find yourself today just wanting to walk away, you find yourself looking back, staring at stones, how do you, how do you even begin the process? A couple weeks ago, Steve talked about the three different areas of vulnerability, the three places where we get attacked, where the enemy is going to knock us down over and over again. He just laid out the battle plan of the enemy. And if one of these three areas is the area where you've been hit, if one of these areas is the area where the breach has occurred and your faith has been knocked down, I just wanna begin to give us some entry steps to begin the process of rebuilding in an abandoned or broken faith. Here's the first thing he talked about. He talked about lust of the flesh, this is the temptation to do, is to experience pleasure outside of the design of God and what God has intended. It could be sexual sin. It could be gluttony. It's, what, it's to experience something, to, to, to do something that God is not going to bless. It's to do something and experience pleasure in a way that God has not intended. And if this has been the, the area where the breach has occurred, if this is the place where the enemy got in and knocked your faith down, the way to begin to rebuild it is through confession. Beginning to find other people and say, this is where I've struggled. This is where my faith has been knocked down. And I can't hide it anymore. And I'm not going to hide it anymore. I need to talk about it. And through confession, the stones start getting moved back in place. And your faith begins to be rebuilt. You walk into a group of men, walk into, if it's been sexual sin, you walk in and you sit in a circle with a group of guys and you say, sexually, affair, whatever it is, this has been the area that I've struggled. And I've, I've never heard a group of men sit in a circle and start talking about that. And, and they're, gonna, they're not going to look at you and go, well, we've never heard that before. You're the only one. You're going to hear those words that are so comforting. Me too. Me too. And the enemy wants to try to convince you to hide. And your flesh is going to crave concealment, but your soul needs confession. To begin to rebuild, your flesh is going to begin to say, hide and deny, hide and deny. This is the enemy's battle plan, to convince you and begin to make you think you're the only one who struggles the way that you struggle. Nobody's as dark, nobody's struggles as deep. It's unique to you, but it's not and you begin to talk about it, your soul will begin to crave and need confession to begin to heal and put the stones back in place. We talked about a second area, and it was the temptation of the lust of the eye. This is the temptation to have. It's greed, essentially, to possess things and constantly be obsessed with things that are not ours, that are not ours and to ignore the things that God has actually entrusted to us and given us. And the culture that we live in, where we have more than, than anybody else, it's, it's so bizarre, but it's the work of an enemy, where we constantly become obsessed and greedy, thinking about things that we don't have and ignoring the things that we do. And this is a slower death to your faith than sexual sin. This is when you wake up one day and you open your eyes and you realize that it is no longer God who's on the altar of your heart. It's now stuff. And you need salvation from your stuff. And the way to rebuild a faith that's been knocked down by greed is through gratitude. Through giving thanks to God for what you've been entrusted with and what you have so that you're not constantly thinking about all the things that you don't. And gratitude is not a, na a natural state that you're gonna drift towards. 
You're not just going to wake up one day and have an attitude of gratitude. It has to become a practice and a habit of consistently reminding yourself, I need to be grateful for this. I need to be grateful for this. And a soul that gets bent towards greed is going to end up worshiping idols. But a soul that gets bent towards gratitude will end up worshiping God. Because gratitude and worship just go together. When you begin to give thanks, it leads to a heart that is filled for worship. For God, you begin to rebuild through gratitude. Talked about a second area, the pride of life. In terms of ego, it's the temptation to be. In a social media world where we're constantly uh, being our own PR agent, creating images, the temptation to be is a struggle. It's a struggle. And if you're anything like me, you read through this list, you go, I'm three for three. (laughs) Join the club. These are all areas where we will struggle as people because we live in a world that's at war. And if it's been ego, If pride has been the thing that knocks your faith down, you rebuild through humility. You rebuild through humility. And humility is a funny thing. You can't just say, well, I'm gonna try to be more humble. It almost makes it worse. Well, I'm gonna be really humble. Have I been more humble lately? It's almost like trying to fall asleep. You ever notice when you try to fall asleep, you never can? You just lay in bed longer, go, I'm gonna try to fall asleep. It doesn't work. And the way humility begins to arrive in our heart is through prayer, through prayer. When you begin to pray, you're essentially admitting that you're not God. When you hit your knees, close your eyes, bow your head, you are essentially saying, I am not God. And it begins to put your faith back together through prayer. Prayer, worship, gratitude. These are the things that begin to rebuild a house and a temple that has been torn down. And whatever we do, would we not be content in a world at war? when our faith has been knocked down, just to stare at stones and keep walking past the rubble. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that in Christ Jesus, we have been declared the temples of God. We have been declared living stones, as Peter says. Sacred space, sons and daughters. And God, I just pray over this room where an enemy has compromised, where an enemy has knocked down, where there's been a breach. Would we not be content just to keep staring at stones? Would we begin the process of picking up the pieces? God, give somebody the courage. Maybe it's just to walk into the Connection Center today and say, I need prayer. I need confession. Whatever we do, God, would we not be people that just treat our faith as a secondary issue? Would we make it primary? and begin to rebuild what's been broken. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.